and uh, look at a few different things. I'm calling this message Adventures on the Road of Providence as we see what God did in the life of uh, Ruth and Naomi. Father, I ask that as we go through this now that you would help us to grasp and understand and then get excited about your involvement in our lives. There's a lot of things that happen that we cannot explain. There's so much what you do that is totally unseen. But you are controlling the scenes in our lives. And I pray that we would trust you, even as we just sang that we did in the songs that we sang. In Jesus' name, amen. America was founded by adventure. Christopher Columbus, after diligent study, figured that you could go west and end up east eventually. And so he went for it at great expense, at great peril. He wanted to see what was out there, and he did. Now we have a story of a young girl named Ruth who also went west to Bethlehem to see what God would do. And it ended up to be quite an adventure as God took those normal events of her life and wove them together for His will. Now when you think about your life, would you say as a Christian, my life is pretty much an adventure? You ought to see it that way because, not because of who you are, but you have a God who is in control and is weaving the events of your life together. Though you don't know what those events are, God is clearly in charge. And I think it's exciting just to see what God will unfold in our lives. What's around the next bend? What kind of people are you going to meet? Where will this path that God has put me on eventually lead me? A missionary to India, E. Stanley Jones, said, Many live in dread of what's coming. Why should we? The unknown puts adventure into life. It gives us something to sharpen our souls on. The unexpected around the corner gives a sense of anticipation and surprise. Thank God for the unknown future. If we saw all good things which are coming to us, we would sit down and degenerate. If we saw all the evil things, we would be paralyzed. How merciful God is to lift the curtain on today, and as we get strength to meet tomorrow... Then to lift the curtain on tomorrow, he is a considerate God. When Saul of Tarsus was knocked off his animal on the road to Damascus, he had no idea what God was going to do with his life in the next several years, make him a spokesman to the rest of the world. When young David saw that prophet Samuel cruise up to the house with a vial of oil, wanting to anoint somebody as king, he had no idea it would be him. He had no idea that he was going to one day fight Goliath and one day sit upon the throne of the kingdom of Israel. When young Daniel as a teenager was taken into captivity of Babylon, he had no idea that he'd be the vice president of that pagan nation and be able to influence it for God. Or when Moses said, I choose to suffer affliction with God's people rather than to enjoy the treasures of Egypt. He had no idea that he would be leading that bunch of Israelites across the desert into a promised land. Life was an adventure for all of these. And we have the continuing adventures of Ruth and Boaz as God takes natural elements and weaves them together supernaturally in what we call providence. It's a classic example 
of what happens when God unseen gets involved in the visible life of His people. When transcendent reality and human reality collide and what God does with people. So on one hand, we could look in this chapter and see natural events. The daily grind, the nine to five, the uneventful, where you and I generally live and what we think about. But then we look behind the stage, behind the scenes, and we see God, though He is unseen, is moving the scenes that He is behind. One thing for certain, you ought to live in anticipation of what God might do this next week, this next month. And just being open to whatever God would providentially bring into your life. So this morning we're going to look at providence. And we're going to look kind of at two things here. The natural scene and the supernatural source. You know, it's unfortunate. Many people live on only one or two, uh, one of those two levels. Either completely in the natural world, or they completely disregard natural events and expect only the miraculous to happen 24 hours a day. But we have a combination of the natural scene and the supernatural source as we look in this story. Uh, We begin chapter 2, and we've already read several verses, being introduced to a man named Boaz from the family of Elimelech. And we see that Ruth is going out to glean in the fields, and we're going to look at a few more of those verses. Uh, Down in verse 14, Boaz said to her at mealtime, this is after they met, Come here and eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed parched grain to her. And she ate and was satisfied and kept some back. When she rose up to glean, Boaz commanded his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. Also, let grain from the bundles fall purposely for her. Leave it that she may glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening, beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. She took it up and went into the city, and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. So she brought out, gave to her what she had kept back after she had been satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where have you gleaned today? Where'd you work? Blessed be the one who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, as if a light now goes off in her soul, Blessed be he of the Lord who has not forsaken his kindness to the living and the dead. Naomi said, This man is a relation of ours, one of our close relatives. Ruth the Moabitess said, He also said to me, You shall stay close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women and that people do not meet you in any other field. So she stayed close by the women of Boaz and gleaned until the end of the barley harvest and the wheat harvest, and she dwelt with her mother-in-law. Now, if we were to look at this story only on the surface, only looking at the veneer, the superficial, the historical, we could learn a lot. We could go back and learn that we're dealing with a family, an ancient family, during the time of the judges. Chapter 1, verse 1, the judges ruled during that time. 
So we could say, well, great, we have an ancient cameo of what life was like between 1375 B.C. and 1050 B.C., which is the time of the Judges. If we look a little further, we could say, well, there's a lot of agricultural things going on. There was a famine in the land, chapter 1. Now, the end of chapter 1 and chapter 2, there's things growing back into the land. There's people gleaning out in the fields and harvesting. So we can learn a lot about ancient agrarian cultures, how people were tied to the land. This is before the days of machines and computers and how people were just depending upon the rain for their sustenance. If we read a little bit further in chapter 3, we learn about ancient relationships, ancient courting methods, ancient dating methods and marriage, especially an odd rule called the leveret marriage, how families would keep family lineages going on and on through a very odd custom. And if we read a little bit further into chapter 4, we see, oh, there's a genealogy. So we get the family tree now of King David. And we could just read about the natural scene and view the Bible as literature and close it and say, well, great, I've learned some interesting facts. Now, that's how many people approach the Bible. They live only in the natural realm, only in the natural world. The Bible is seen as a piece of ancient literature to be put alongside other volumes of ancient literature. Oh, yes, we have the Bible. It's next to Homer's Iliad and Odyssey. Caesar's Gallic Wars, The Origin of Species by Darwin. Oh, everybody ought to have a Bible just to impress their neighbors when they come in and see one on the coffee table. Of course, you can press flowers with it. There's all sorts of things you can do with Bibles. Some will go a step further and say, oh, and, and I would even say the Bible has a degree of inspiration, sort of like, well, Shakespeare, he was sort of an inspiring fellow. And so the Bible's inspired, sort of like ancient inspired works on a human level. But let's just say the Bible is an ancient picture filled with myths and beliefs, giving us insight into culture and history of how people lived in ancient times. It's filled, of course, with errors and flaws. That's what they would say. That's not only how many people approach the Bible, that's how a lot of people live their lives. They see life only in the superficial, only in the mechanistic, only in the natural, not taking into account the supernatural. They sort of take their cues from the 5th century Greek philosopher, Protagoras, who said, man is the measure of all things. And that's become the banner of humanism ever since. So it's man, it's not God. Let's be man-centered, not God-centered. Let's not think about the supernatural. Let's live only in the superficial, natural realm. After all, they say, you are born, you live, and you die. Period. After death, there is nothing. So between birth and death, have a lot of fun. Because you are just a biological animal. Oh, you might have evolved higher than other animals, but you are just a biological animal. A man went to the zoo and was astonished when he saw an orangutan in his cage standing. And in one hand, the orangutan had a copy of the Bible. In the other hand, he had a copy of Charles Darwin's Origin of Species. The zookeeper was looking on. The man astonished started talking to the orangutan. After all, he thought, if he can read, certainly I can talk to him. He said, excuse me, 
Can you actually read those books? The orangutan said smartly, Why, of course. And the man followed up with the second question, Do you actually understand what you're reading? At this, the orangutan had a puzzled look on his face, and he said, No, I don't quite understand. You see, this book tells me I'm my brother's keeper. This book tells me I'm my keeper's brother. And I'm confused. I don't know which to believe. Interesting, Jude spoke about people who are confused in this area of the natural and the supernatural. This is what he said in his book. These men speak abusively against whatever they do not understand and what things they do understand by instinct. Like unreasoning animals, these are the very things that destroy them. You know, it's interesting. People get shocked whenever humans act like animals. Did you hear of that rape? Did you hear of that murder? Did you hear of that horrible crime? Well, they acted like animals. Well, wait a minute. You've been telling them for hundreds of years that they are animals, and now you're surprised when they act like what you tell them they are. And if there are more, no moral absolutes, who cares what they did? They just acted according to instinct, their animal nature. Professors have been telling us for years, you're, you're an accident. Your ancestors were once just freckles on the heads of tadpoles that the sun beat down upon and eventually higher life evolved. You are a fortuitous occurrence of an accidental circumstance. And yet when we act like it, people get shocked. It's because you're not an animal. God created you in His image. Francis Schaeffer said, When one accepts the secular worldview that the final reality is only material or energy shaped by chance, then human life is lowered to the level of animal existence. A lot of people approach the Bible. A lot of people approach life on this level. The deist approaches life on this level. The deist goes a step further. The deist will say, Well, I believe that there is God. But the deist will say God is not involved. God is like the absent clockmaker who wound up the universe and then sort of stepped back and took a vacation to some other galaxy perhaps and just learns what happens, watches what happens. The deist will say there's no miracles, there's no divine retribution, there's no supernatural providence. We just live on the natural level. The Bible says the natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit. They are spiritually appraised, neither can he know them. That's the mind of the natural man. But what is sad is to see many Christians live on this level. I should say many professing Christians who will say unashamedly, I believe in God. Why, I even go to church. But if you were to look at their lives, you would see lives lived as though God did not exist. Their life doesn't reflect that they're anticipating God to move or to act or to react. They say they believe in God, but they live a life as though God doesn't exist at all. Paul said they have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. God said in the Old Testament to Isaiah the prophet concerning his people, The ox knows his master. The donkey knows his owner's manger. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. It's sad when you've got quote-unquote God's people 
not able to anticipate God's action in their own lives. There's a story in the Old Testament of the servant of the prophet Elisha, who lived only on that level. Elisha, of course, was a man that God revealed secrets to. And uh, the king of Syria was planning some counterattacks against Israel. And every time the king of Syria would say, Okay, troops, move out and camp at such and such a location. Elisha, having a line to God, would tell the king of Israel, Hey, the Syrians are going to camp over there. Get your troops over there. So everywhere the Syrians went, the Israelis were there ready for them. The uh, king of Syria became angry and uh, got his troops together one day and he said, All right, who's the rat? Who's against the king of Syria? Who's been telling our plans to the enemy? Finally, one of the head guys said, King, it's not any of us. But there's a character over in Israel named Elisha who's a prophet of God. And he knows the things you speak to your wife in your bedroom. And he's been telling his own king about all of our plans because God's revealed it to him. King said, where is he? They said, he's in the city of Dothan. Let's go get him. So they surrounded the city of Dothan, all of the troops of the Assyrians, to find Elisha and kill him. Well, the servant of Elisha saw what was happening and peeked out and saw all of these soldiers around the city. And he said, Alas, my master, we're surrounded. And Elisha said, Oh God, open his eyes that he may see. When the servant of Elisha looked up again, he saw at this time chariots of fire and soldiers, the flaming angelic hosts of God surrounding the surrounding soldiers. And he said to his servant, Elisha said, Those who are with us are more than those who are against us. But he couldn't see it. He only saw the natural. Elisha saw into the supernatural and he thought, oh, this guy's in such despair. God just opened his eyes that he can see the reality of what's happening. And instead of saying, oh, alas, my master, we're in trouble, he thought, alas, my master, they're in trouble. Different divine perspective. What's even worse is not only do people live on this natural level, but they look to the natural level for hope. There are people who think that there's some virtue in man still left. And we're going to pull ourselves out of all of our problems. If we just visualize world peace, we can get together and make it right. In spite of all of the lessons of history, in spite of the Genghis Khans, the Adolf Hitlers, the Mussolinis, the Eichmanns, people still say, I believe in man. They live on the natural level. Well, let's look behind the scenes at the supernatural source. For we see that Ruth is on the threshold of a new life. A new chapter is opening up. God is about to do some great things. And she has no idea exactly what's going on until probably it's all over with. She has made a commitment to God. The 16th verse of chapter 1, she says, Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. In chapter 2, verse 12, Boaz notices that Ruth has taken refuge under the wings of God. Now let's read the first three verses of chapter 2. And let's notice a phrase which brings to bear the principle that we're talking about. The principle of providence. And then I'll explain it to you and define it. Now there was a relative of Naomi's husband, a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech. His name was Boaz. 
So Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and glean heads of grain after him, in whose sight I may find favor. She said to her, Go, my daughter. Then she left, and when she gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. She happened to come. That's from the human viewpoint. From the divine viewpoint, there's no happenstance at all. God's directing her steps. But from the human viewpoint, she just happened to go to this field. Now, if you were to ask Ruth, Ruth, how did you know which field to go to? How did you know to go to Boaz's field? She'd probably look at you puzzled. Well, come on, Ruth. I mean, uh, wasn't there like a stop sign in all the other fields? And then a sign that said, Boaz's field, next three exits? Didn't you receive a vision from heaven? Some angelic host saying, Ruth, go this way, Ruth. She would say, no. I just got out and saw a bunch of grain. I thought, that looks as good as any other field. And it just happened, from my perspective, from my viewpoint, it was just happenstance that I ended up in Boaz's field. Now, if you look at the end of the story, look back through all of the little details, you would say, oh no, God is directing each and every step that she made. But she did not know it while it was going on. You know, there are some people that are waiting for a fax from heaven. They are not content to just trust like everybody else. Oh no, they want a hotline. They want God to miraculously, unmistakably have fireworks in the sky or voices in their bedroom or whatever that would let them know this is God's will unmistakably. Whatever happened to trusting God in His providence? There was a man named Jones who was living at home when the flood came. And as the water was rising, people were evacuating. He decided, I'm going to stick it out and trust God. So he climbed to the roof of his house. And as the water rose up to his ankles, a little guy came by in a rowboat and said... Jones, can I give you a lift? He said, no, you go ahead. I'm going to trust God. He'll save me. Guy left. As the water rose up to his waist, somebody came by and said, in a motorboat this time, and said, Jones, I'll rescue you and take you to higher ground. I'll take you out of danger. He said, no, 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 no. I'm going to trust God. He will save me. The Lord will provide. The guy motored on. Hours later, when the water had risen up to his chin, and he was on his tiptoes, The emergency helicopter was dispatched, flew over the house where Jones was at, and a rope was lowered, and over the loudspeaker they said, Jones, grab a hold, and we'll lift you to safety. And he said, go away, go away, I trust that God will save me, the Lord will provide. Well, poor old Jones could only tread water for a little while longer, and he finally died and was in heaven to meet his maker. And he stood before God, and he was a little bit angry. He was complaining. He said, God, why, when I put all of my trust in you, did you let me drown? And God said, I sent you two boats and a helicopter. What more do you want? (laughs) Oh, but he wanted something more miraculous. Boats and helicopters, anybody can have those. Let's define this principle. Providence. It's something you should know exactly what it is. Providence means the overruling hand of God in human affairs. It's where God is supernaturally working in a very natural way to you and I. It's the overruling hand of God. 
Providence does not mean miraculous. And a lot of times, oh, that was a miracle. Oh, that was miraculous. And I think we throw terms around and we really lessen the impact of the terms. A miracle. Well, if you could walk on water, that's a miracle. Men don't normally walk on water. We know that water cannot support the weight of an upright human being unless displaced by some other object. So if you're to stand on water and there's no rocks underneath, and you walk around, we would say, that's a miracle. A resurrection, that's a miracle. Bodies, once they become corpses, do not naturally resuscitate. There has to be the reversal or the overriding of natural law for a miracle to occur. And miracles occur all throughout the Bible. And I believe they still occur today. God can do anything He wants. But providence is where God manipulates ordinary, non-miraculous events to bring about a predetermined end. Now that's no less miraculous that all those events can happen. But they are ordinary events when they occur. The term providence comes from a Latin word, provideo, pro-video. It means to see something in advance. Pro means before, video means I see. Provideo, providence. It, well, look at it this way. It's as if God has a video of your life. And he pops it in his heavenly VCR. You haven't seen the whole video yet. Only what has happened, you can look from now and backward. But God sees the whole video to the end. You've made your plans and God's up there in heaven. He goes, no, I'm going to splice that scene and remove it and throw in this scene. And he sees all of the events before they even occur. John Nelson Darby said, God's ways are behind the scenes, but he moves all the scenes that he is behind. It's as if God is in the shadows. You don't see him, but you see the events unfolding as they become the unfolding will of God. Uh, a couple years ago, I was given this little remote control car. It had these uh, dirt tires on it and a little battery-operated control. And, you know, you've seen them. And you can put them through the dirt and take them on the street and make it turn any way you want to, accelerate, stop, and all that stuff. So one Saturday, or no, it was actually during the week, I decided to get out here in the front parking lot. And as people were coming in, some for counseling, some to see people, I was hiding behind the trees and... I let the car go out a little bit and I'd have it chase the people and then kind of turn around in circles and they who is that? Who's doing that? It's like this car has a mind of its own. Well, it was just me behind the trees. That's all. I was just playing a little joke on people. I was behind the scenes controlling where that car would go. In life, God can manipulate the ordinary to bring about what he wants to happen. That's providence. There are many examples in the scripture of this. We're reading one right here. Another classic is the story of Esther. And you could just say, well, it just so happened. It just so happened that as Ahasuerus was on the throne that his wife got him really angry and he deposed his wife, Queen Vashti, and he needed another queen, so he just happened to pick Esther, who just happened to be Jewish. And one day it just happened that her uncle Mordecai heard about a guy named Haman who wanted to kill all the Jews, and he happened to tell Esther, and Esther happened to tell her husband. 
And it happened to get Haman in trouble. And as things happened to turn out, Haman got hung on the gallows that he made to kill all the Jews. God overrode and overturned through natural events a plot. But it was God working behind the scenes. Now, I think you could tell the story about your own life. There's a lot of things when you look back, good and evil, you'd say, this is the hand of God. I could say, one evening, it just so happened I was invited to a potluck in California. It just so happened a girl named Lenny was there. just so happened I thought, she's cute. (laughs) And it just so happened after a couple years that I wanted to go somewhere besides California. And it just so happened that a guy was going to Albuquerque who said, you know, you ought to think about coming along. And it just so happened that when I married this girl, we came here and we happened to rent this place that uh, we are having problems with the landlord. And it just so happened that this building became vacant. And on and on and on we could see, looking back, the providential hand of God in ordinary human events. Now, so often we want a road map. Because we don't like the life of faith. I don't want to trust. That's too tough. Just show me. Speak to me. Send an angel at least. Give me a road map. Dr. Henry Ironside, excuse me, Harry Ironside, who wrote many Bible commentaries, was asked about the will of God, and he said that of the decisions he had to make in his life, 80% were made without knowing at the time they were God's will. 80% of his choices he made not knowing what was going on necessarily, but he found out later that they were God's will. So here's Ruth. Ruth, how'd you know? I got up in the morning and saw a great standing grain of uh, field of grain, and I thought, that's as good as any, and it just so happened that I was in Boaz's field. That is providence. Your life is in God's hands. God did not wind you up and then step back and watch you tick, 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 tick. And then if you run into a wall, go, well, you win some, you lose some. (laughs) God is active and involved, if you are a Christian this morning, of the events of your life. Listen to what Jesus said. Not one sparrow falls to the ground apart from your Father's will. And the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. So instead of biting your fingernails, how am I going to know God's will? Chill out. Relax. Let the burden fall upon the one who has providence under his wings. And don't feel like you're cheated if someone claims to have a hotline to heaven. God God told me to turn right, then he told me to turn left, then he told me to go 40 feet and then stop, and then God... Hey, fine. God can do whatever he wants, but just trust him with your life. Now let's look at some of the particulars of the just-so-happened, this supernatural source. First of all, notice the timing. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 22 tells us the timing. Naomi returned, and Ruth, the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. Now they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Oh, that's perfect. That's between April and May sometime. It's the feast called the Feast of First Fruits. And the ancient law of Moses required that farmers go out and harvest. And they get the first fruits of the sheaves and dedicate them to God for that feast. But there was also another law that said all of the poor of the land must go after, in the same fields, after the harvesters, after the reapers, and glean whatever is left to take care of them. That was the law of God. 
Which would mean that you've got professional farmers and poor people in the same fields about the same time. So the chances are pretty good because of this ancient law and this time that these two, Boaz and Ruth, are going to come together. Let's say it would have been winter. Let's say Naomi would have heard about it at a different time and she would have come back in the middle of winter. Well, all the women would be inside during that time doing domestic duties. The farmers would be out, just the men planting and pruning. But because of this time, you've got the poor, you've got the women, you've got the children, you've got the professionals all out in the field at the same time. So the timing is perfect. Have you ever seen God do things in perfect timing? Though, again, at the time you may not know exactly what was happening. A woman moved to a poor section of London with her young son and her invalid daughter. Her husband died. She used to be very comfortable. She lived in a little village outside of London. And uh, because of her husband's death, there was no income, and so she moved to this poor section of town. One evening, she and her son went out and went to a gospel meeting where she heard the gospel, received Jesus Christ as her Savior. She became a part of that local church, but she didn't share her need with anyone. They would have gladly helped had they known, but nobody in the church knew. When all the resources had completely been bled dry, that evening she knelt down at the bed of her invalid daughter with her son, and she prayed, O God, I cast my need upon you. The next morning, the mailman gave her a letter with money, the equivalent of a week's wage that her husband used to make. It was from New Zealand, from somebody she never met. But a guy in New Zealand who had obviously known her husband at one time, heard that he died, and sent the money because his heart was touched. Well, here's the clench. He sent it five months earlier from New Zealand, and it went to the village first where they used to live, and they tried to figure out, well, she's not here now, so it went to another place in London. It was the wrong address, and it finally, five months after it was sent, ended up at the right address, but it came the day after they prayed. Perfect timing. He didn't know it. He didn't say, yes, now is the perfect time to send this envelope. Five months and two days before. He didn't know anything. He just thought, oh, I feel so bad and sent it. But it happened to be the right time in God's providence. Not only was it the right time, it was the right place. For we read about in verse 2 and 3 that she ended up in the field of Boaz. Now, there were many fields in Bethlehem. Bethlehem means house of bread. Beit Lechem in Hebrew. It was the breadbasket of Israel. There were many fields, not just one. I've stood in the fields of Bethlehem in this area, and I've looked around and I thought, you know, I wonder where this happened. Which field was it? What would the odds of finding that right field be? Uh, she could have been in the field next to Boaz or a couple fields away. Maybe they could have seen each other but not come together in this fashion. But it was not only the right time, it was the right place, and thirdly, it was the right person. She could have been in the right field, she could have been at the right time, but Boaz may not have been the right candidate. We read about in verse 1, there was a relative of Naomi's husband, a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech. His name was Boaz. Now as we go down to the end of the chapter, and uh, the mother-in-law of Ruth says, where have you been working? And she says, the fields of Boaz. She gets tickled, she gets all excited. In verse 20, Naomi said, Blessed be he of the Lord who has not forsaken his kindness to the living and the dead. The man is a relation of ours 
one of our close relatives. Here's the picture. Elimelech split, left Israel, went to Moab. When he did that, he forfeited all of his land, his debts, his mortgage, everything. It was left to another. Naomi comes back, but she can't just say, move over, buddy, this is my land. It's been forfeited. And according to the law of Moses, it would stay forfeited until a special year called the Jubilee year, when all of the debts were canceled and the land would go back to its original owner. But the Jubilee comes every 50 years, and we don't know exactly when this is, but next Jubilee year, Naomi could be dead. Ruth could be in slavery at that time. But there was a stipulation. If you had a relative who had bucks, this is a paraphrased translation, he could pay the debt. He could come in, if he was willing, and buy back, redeem the land for you as his relative. If he could prove that he was your relative, if he was willing to do it, the land could then go back to you by paying the redemptive price. You say, well, fine, but so what? Because Naomi says he's a relation of ours and she sees wedding bells ticking in her mind and her eyes. Why would anybody want to marry their relative? I mean, you think, that's not going to excite Ruth. Hey, this guy's related to us. <laughs> Thanks. Nobody wants to marry their relative, right? Well, in those days, you did. If it was the right kind of relative. Because again, the law said, not only does the person who redeemed the land cancel your debts, but if there are no sons to perpetuate your family name, he's responsible to raise up a son lineage so that your family name can continue in Israel. Let me read the law to you in Deuteronomy 25. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, that's the case here, the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother shall go into her, take her as his wife, perform the duty of a husband's brother to her, and it shall be that the firstborn son which she bears will succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. Eventually, this courtship will end up in a wedding. Eventually, King David will be produced by this union. Eventually, Jesus Christ will come on the scene and be born in Bethlehem because of this union. It seems so natural, but it was supernatural, God weaving the events together. So, where were you today? Oh, it just happened to be that it was the time of the barley harvest. It just happened to be that I was in Boaz's field. It just happened to be that I met Boaz, our relation. So the who, what, where, how is all coming together, and it's not it just happened. From the divine perspective, it was orchestrated. Now, I don't want to appear like a determinist, but all you have to do is veg in the spirit and whatever is determined by fate will occur, like the Stoics used to say in ancient Greece. There is an element of cooperation with God. There's a couple things to notice about Ruth. She was humbly obedient to the Word of God. She could have said, I'm too proud to go out there and glean in the field. I'll get another job. But because the Bible said the poor of the land are to go out there and do it, she said, I'm going to obey the Bible. For after all, I said, your God will be my God. This is part of it. So her heart was right in humbly obeying the word. Secondly, she was fulfilling her obligations. She loved her mother-in-law. She didn't say, oh, I'm going to just wait at home for a vision. 
or a word from God or a miracle. She said, no, I need a job. And I'm going to go out and find a job. And I'm going to leave the rest for God. And in fulfilling her obligations, in loving her family, and in being obedient to the Word of God, God directed her steps as the master plan. Coincidence? I don't think so. Providence? Absolutely. So you can live on the natural level. Oh, all of this wonderful universe we have, it just so happened. Really? Just so happened that the earth is 93 million miles away from the sun? Just so happened that the earth has this protective thing called ozone around it? It just so happened that there's a two-third to one-third land mass to, uh, or water to land mass ratio? Just so happened that we're 23 and a third degrees tilt in our axis from the sun giving us the seasons? It just so happened that the oceans are as deep as they are? On and on and on. It just so happened that years ago, the right pressure, the right heat, the right time, protein collided with this and whap, life just happened. I don't think so. God here in the book of Ruth caused these events to happen supernaturally, though they seem natural to her. What promise then does this remind us of? How about Romans 8.28? We know that all things work together for good to those that love God, those who are called according to His purpose. Well, that sure was true with Ruth, wasn't it? Everything was working for good, even her suffering. Her husband's death in Moab. The hard years in Moab. The long journey to Bethlehem, ending up as a poverty-stricken person. God was weaving all those events for His supernatural cause to bring it to bear. You know, I'm glad I don't have a blueprint. I'd hate a blueprint of my life. I'd absolutely hate it if God said, here is your life in the next ten years. No, I don't want to read it. I'd rather see what new road lies ahead. What adventures God would have for me. Some pleasant, some not pleasant. But letting God weave those elements together providentially. One person writes this way. At first, I saw God as my observer, my judge, keeping track of all the things I did wrong. Some of you still suffer like that. You see God as a cosmic policeman, waiting to slap your wrist if you do something wrong. Oh, you're having too much fun. Stop it. There's people who think of God that way. The person goes on. He was out there sort of like the president. I recognized his picture when I saw it, but I didn't really know him. But later on, when I learned to trust, it seemed as though life was like a bike ride on a tandem bike, and God was in the back helping me pedal. I don't know just when it was that he suggested we change places, but life hasn't been the same since. When he took the lead, it was all I could do to hang on. He knew delightful paths up mountains and through rocky places, at breakneck speeds. Even though it looked like madness, he said, pedal. I was worried and anxious, and I asked, Where are you taking me? He just laughed and didn't answer. I started to learn to trust. I forgot my boring life, and I entered into adventure. When I'd say, I'm scared, he'd lean back and touch my hand. At first, I did not trust him in control of my life. I thought he'd wreck it. But he knows bike secrets. He knows how to make it lean and take sharp corners and dodge large rocks and speed through scary passages, and I'm learning to shut up and pedal in the strangest places. 
I'm beginning to enjoy the view and the cool breeze on my face with my delightful companion. And when I'm sure I just can't do any more, he just smiles and says, Pedal. Oh God, why are you allowing this to come in my life? Just pedal. Lord, what does this mean? What is this person all about? Things are upsetting. Just pedal. God, I don't... Just pedal. How do you learn to ride a bike? Do you sit home and read a book and underline all the relevant passages about turning your wheels with your pedals? You get out and do it. That's the best way to learn to do it. And as you go, God will guide. Oh, but I want a miracle. It's a miracle that He loves us, that He puts up with us, and that He decides, I will lead your life. Just let me. And hang on. Father, we're grateful for the prospect of adventure. Adventure in the road of providence. We don't know where that road's going to turn. We haven't seen a blueprint. We don't have an aerial view of our lives. But Lord, we know that you know. And that's sufficient. And I pray that we would let go. Trust. Living responsibly in the natural realm. But anticipating supernatural guidance and intervention. Lord, I pray that we would look at each day as an adventure. Who am I going to meet? What's going to happen? What is God going to do? That we would be responsible in our duties, in our obedience, in our humility, and letting all things work together for good. Humble us, Lord, and cause us to trust you wholeheartedly. And Lord, could it be that you, by your providence, have brought some to this service this morning who don't yet know you? They just thought, well, I'll just try this place out. I'll see what these Christians are all about. I'll just step in. Could it be, Lord, that they have an appointment with you today? That you are drawing them to yourself? We anticipate that, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand. To my right, to your left, is a prayer room up front with three doors in which reside.